0: Good morning again. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the gospel and its sufficiency. We thank you that you've revealed truth to us. you um have given us your word. We saw that even this morning, um, the fact that if we did not have you to reveal your truth to us, we would not be able to know truth. And so we thank you for your faithfulness in that way, that you have not abandoned us, but have been kind to us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be familiar with uh, a number of sayings that are all uh, an attempt to communicate, really, the same thing. Uh, Doctrine divides, service unites. Doctrine divides, this was a new one for me, missions unites. Doctrine divides, Christ unites. Doctrine divides, love unites. Doctrine divides, ministry unites. John MacArthur is uh, attributed as saying the following, people often tell me that doctrine divides, and I say, yes, it divides truth from error. R.C. Sproul has said this, nothing divides like truth. Nothing divides like Jesus. What is often missed from uh, our assessment uh, of, of doctrine is that while it is true that doctrine divides, it is also true that doctrine unites. This church, Crossview Church, is a testimony of the power of doctrine to unite people. I mean, who here in this room would have chosen this group of people to be friends with? (laughs) How many of you would want to hang out with me? You still probably don't want to hang out with me, okay? (laughs) How many of us would say that we, we, we could probably go through here and And there is a wide variety of of outside interests that we have, uh, a variety of uh, intellectual capabilities amongst us. There's a a wide range of differences that probably, if it were not for this church, we would not necessarily choose to hang out with every last person here in this church building. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) There's always one in every crowd. (laughs) And yet... Doctrine has brought us together. We are here because of doctrine. We are here because there are truths that are precious to us. We are here because of the the nature and the work of Christ. We are here because we believe that we are justified by faith alone, apart from our deeds, apart from our works. We are here because we believe in the deity of Christ his power to save and to forgive sins. Doctrine has united us as a body of believers. But the other thing that is often missed from uh, this assessment of doctrine, this dividing kind of negative uh, view that people have of doctrine, is to look at its definition. Doctrine, basically, at a core level, simply means something that is believed or taught. Uh, I think it's R.C. Sproul that said, everyone is a theologian. And we could also say that everybody has doctrine. Unbelievers have doctrine they adhere to. Believers of all stripes have doctrine they adhere to, whether or not they admit it. Doctrine is simply something that is taught. It is simply something that is believed. It's an individual belief, it can be an individual belief, an individual doctrine, or it can be a whole worldview, a whole collection of beliefs. And so, it is with great irony that the statement, doctrine divides, love unites, is itself a doctrinal statement. It is a statement of belief. It is a statement of doctrine. They are communicating something about what they believe that I would presume they would want you to embrace and believe too, and so it's inescapable. Whatever level it is on, we all have doctrine. We all believe doctrine. Even our statements about discarding doctrine are doctrinal statements themselves. So really the only question is, are we gonna have good doctrine or bad doctrine? Not are we gonna have any doctrine or no doctrine? The apostle Paul offers a stinging rebuke to the church at Corinth in our passage today. We're going to be in just a moment looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. And in verse 2, the apostle Paul says, "I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. You were not ready." We are dealing, I would suggest to us, with a crisis in the church today, a crisis of significant proportions, one of the most noticeable blights on the modern church. And I'm using this uh, word church in a very broad way. One of the most noticeable blights on the modern church is that she is plagued with ignorance. I do not say the most noticeable blight because uh, I don't know that I'm uh, the authority on figuring out what the biggest thing that we face is, but it is at least one of the biggest blights that we face, and I will say and say rather firmly that ignorance is a big problem in the church in America. I would even go further than that and say that this ignorance that characterizes the church is a proud ignorance. It is a brand of ignorance that is content to stay where it's at. There are Christians who are very proud to discard doctrine, who are very proud to say, we don't worry about all that theology stuff. We don't worry about any of those kinds of things. One pastor uh, in our local community that I've talked with When we began to have a conversation with one another, the topic of expository preaching came up, and as many of you know, expository preaching, there's really a famine of it in our culture, and uh, his response to me in that conversation was that it's too high for people. It's too uh, difficult to understand, and thus he would rather just preach simply, and in his words— just like Jesus did. Another local pastor told me when we began talking about the virgin birth of Christ, we're talking about just some some core doctrines. And when that topic came up, he told me that the virgin birth of Christ is a doctrine that's above his pay grade. He told me that uh, I'm not even sure that Jesus himself mentioned this topic, which was an implication that It probably doesn't matter if Jesus didn't talk about it. Another pastor in our local community told me about the ministerial association in Norville that not all of us here believe in every word of scripture, his words. Another pastor in this local community, when we were talking about racial tensions together... Uh, was very critical of uh, me for trying to simply define social justice issues just from the Bible. Let's open the Bible and see what it says about this. And the criticism was, why are you going to the Bible to find out these kinds of things? The church in America, and again, I'm using the word church broadly, doesn't care very much for the Bible. We have to acknowledge this. Scripture is not valued in our culture. We are living in a world where so-called Christians brag about their spiritual ignorance. Seriously. I have seen and talked with individuals who brag about the fact that they don't know what the Bible has to say. If the Apostle Paul could give an assessment of the American church today, what do you think he would say? I'm sure there's a lot of things he would say. But I can imagine him saying the same thing that he said to Corinth, that we should be ready for eating solid food but are still drinking milk. We, we should be swimming in the word. We're not doing that. We're swimming in worldly wisdom. Is it any wonder why people are leaving the, the church in droves? because we've abandoned doctrine, we've abandoned scripture, we've abandoned truth. And now we're swimming in a culture full uh, of worldly wisdom. But today's passage is more, uh, is about more than just this one point. Today's text is a continuation of a theme that we've been seeing developed here of the divisiveness in the Corinthian church. What Paul is doing in our passage today is he's still telling them how to get rid of their sectarianism and to embrace biblical unity. And the question is, how is this to happen? And Paul addresses a specific variant of division. Specifically, he calls on them to uh, get rid of their jealousy and their strife. And so in light of this, we're going to ask a question today. Actually, kind of two questions. What is the cause of jealousy and strife, according to our passage today? And number two, what is its cure? What is the cause of the jealousy and strife? And what is the cure? And hopefully we'll see how all of these strings tie together as we go on here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, um, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Really going to look at two points today. What is spiritual maturity? And then what are spiritual leaders? verses 1 through 4, what is spiritual maturity? Still addressing the division at Corinth, Paul rebukes these Christians and tells them, you're acting like people of the flesh. You're acting like a bunch of unbelievers, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, I want to say, as we are looking at Paul's stinging rebuke here, I want us to see that Paul is actually giving to us something very encouraging. He is saying, I'm addressing you as people of the flesh. But notice what else he says. He calls them brothers, and he says that they are in Christ. He's not saying you are people of the flesh, he's saying you're acting like people of the flesh, using the word as. And then this is reinforced by the fact that he calls them brothers, and he says they are in Christ. Now, the encouraging aspect about this for us is that when we sin, that does not automatically mean we are lost in unbelievers. There's a difference between where we are positionally that we're positionally justified, and then there is where we are practically, and really the whole goal of Christian sanctification is to take position and practice and match them up so that they're doing the same thing, okay? Now, sometimes as Christians, we can kind of get them going like this, and so Paul is saying, you're acting like unbelievers. It's not that you are unbelievers, you're acting like them, These are people who are not people of the flesh positionally. They are positionally righteous, evidenced by the in Christ and brothers statements. They had their standing with Christ, and thus they were secure. But practically speaking, they were acting like people of the flesh. Their lives were not conforming to the gospel. These Christians were infants. This is a rebuke. He does not... Think very highly of their infantile status. Infants are great, by the way. This is not a corresponding insult to infants. Everybody loves infants. Everybody loves a new baby infant, okay? That's great. What's not so great is a grown adult acting like an infant, and everybody recognizes that when they see it. That's not so great. That's what Paul is saying here, He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, still, you're not yet ready. Some Christians, as we saw in our introduction, even our own community, some Christians don't want their pastors to get, quote-unquote, too deep or work through portions of the Bible with any sort of depth at all. You know what Paul said about his teaching of doctrine acts 20 26 through 27 therefore i testify you this day this is him talking to the ephesian elders that i am innocent of the blood of all for i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god the whole counsel See, wow, it takes a long time for you to get through all of this stuff. Well, keep in mind, okay, these people are meeting like day and night. They're constantly meeting, and Paul is just working through doctrine again and again and again. And he's preaching the, the, the whole counsel of God. He, he's not leaving stuff out. He's not dismissing things. He's actually going through the whole word of God and saying, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's this. He didn't skip parts. He declared everything. The statement, even now you are not yet ready, is a rebuke. It is a criticism. It is a point of failure in these Corinthian Christians. It's a reminder to us that we need to be swimming in the word. Here's something that I think is important for us to see, and I want to bring this up. This. This may be a small rabbit trail, but I don't think it's that big a road. because later on in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see how this fits together. So I'm going to just step out for a minute. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 13. Draw a line between these two passages and help us to see something that hopefully will be instructive for us. Knowledge and love should never be pitted against one another. Truth and love should never be pitted against one another. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing this is true just as much as our present passage is true about knowledge of god's word if knowledge without love which is this if knowledge without love is nothing then love without knowledge is misguided or to borrow the language of the passage in front of us, love without knowledge makes you an infant in Christ. You are a grown adult, still drinking baby formula. You don't have to look very far to see that the world loves the word love. And the world has distorted the concept of love in some pretty wild and fanciful ways. We need knowledge and love both. And so when we get to First Corinthians chapter 13, what we're going to emphasize there, as is emphasized in the text, is the importance of not having a loveless knowledge. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to emphasize the importance of not having a knowledgeless love. Both are important. And of course, loveless knowledge looks like all of the theological academics who know all of the deep truths of Scripture but have no heart, no compassion, no, no, sometimes you wonder, does that person even have a soul? (laughs) And yet they can argue logical circles around anyone they want to. We don't want that, certainly. On the other hand, knowledgeless love looks like Christians who are open to every wind of doctrine that the world has to give to us. Knowledgeless love looks like what's going on with many Christians embracing the pro-LGBT agenda in the name of love. This is not the love of the Bible. Our culture might think that the lyric, all you need is love, makes for good morals. But if you don't have doctrine to define what that love is supposed to look like, then you can do literally anything in the name of love. Anything goes. If all you need is love, then it's open to whatever you want that to mean. And so we need both. We need knowledge to inform our love and we need love to give life to our knowledge. Uh, We might say it this way. Love is the fire that warms our doctrine, while doctrine is the rail that directs our love. Love is the fire that warms our doctrine, while doctrine is the rail that directs our love. Or perhaps we could say this The loveless Christian is a lifeless Christian, and the doctrineless, if that's a word, Christian is a wandering Christian. No love, there's no life in you. No doctrine, and you're wandering all over the place. And so it is correct to emphasize both realities because the Bible does that, and specifically in 1 Corinthians, Paul does that in chapter 3 and chapter 13. Here, in our present text, he emphasizes doctrine. In chapter 13, he emphasizes love. We must never preach one to the exclusion of the other. We need both. Uh, One author expresses it this way. Uh, Well, somewhere in here, there's my quotes. Uh, Well, this is in a bad order today. Well, I'll just read it to you. He says this Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our truth hard if it's not softened by love. We need both of those realities. We might think of it this way. Love and truth are like two wings of an airplane. Both are necessary. Which which wing is more important, the right wing or the left wing? Uh, <laughs> both. What's more important, uh, doctrine or love? Uh, both. We need both of those things. Uh, lose either wing and you'll crash to the ground. Or to express it a different way, we'll consider, quote, That is attributed to C.H. Spurgeon, I, for the life of me, could not find this, and so it's probably not. But whoever said it, it was kind of good and kind of pithy and kind of helpful. Uh, The quote is this. In fact, I just put it in as anonymous here. When asked what is more important, prayer or reading the Bible, I ask what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? (laughs) Which one do you need more? And if uh, we were to maybe take that paradigm and put it here in our present illustration, uh, I think that the, um, the, the truth in the doctrine is the breathing in part. We're, we're absorbing God's word. We're absorbing God's truth. We're, we're inhaling. We're, we're, we're bringing in the truth. And then love is that exhaling, that breathing out, that, that spreading of that truth in a loving, compassionate, kind, patient, merciful way we need both of those realities. And right now, in our present text, Paul is rebuking uh, the people who don't have any knowledge of the word of God. This is pretty serious, actually, because the prophet Hosea addresses in Hosea 4.6, and he says, my people are destroyed because, or for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Obviously, Paul and the prophet Habakkuk, speaking on behalf of the Lord here, um, don't take too kindly to those who would say, doctrine and knowledge and truth don't matter. We need these realities. Similar to these Israelites in Hosea, the Corinthian Christians are rejecting God's wisdom. They're still on baby formula. And they're accepting all sorts of false things. How does Paul know this? Because of the next couple of verses here. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, he said, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul knew. He said, how does Paul know that they're rejecting wisdom? Because they're fighting. And fighting people are people who are rejecting wisdom. You're still fighting. You're still having jealousy, strife. You're arguing about Paul and Apollos. And he's saying, you're still of the flesh. You're still thinking in a human way. You're still, you're on baby formula. We know that belief determines behavior. If you have bad beliefs, you will eventually produce bad behavior. And that's the point here. Their behavior, was revealing something that was going on in the heart. They were jealous, full of strife, and this was revealed in their sectarianism. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus. This is the answer to our first question. Our first question was, what is the cause of jealousy and strife? And of course, the second question was, what is its cure? But the cause here of the jealousy and the strife of these Corinthian Christians is worldly thinking, immature thinking, acting like people of the flesh. It is their being infants in Christ. It is not eating steak, but still consuming baby formula. That's the problem with these Christians. And because they were doing those things, because they weren't eating steak, they were acting like babies, what babies do. They're fighting with one another once again, uh you know there's nothing wrong with baby food, okay, but grown adults who eat baby food that's a problem, okay. Grown adults should be eating steak they should <laughs> um What Paul wanted was these Corinthian Christians to get uh, to their kindergarten graduation and move up to the first grade. Come on, move up to the first grade. And so it is with us. If we never study the word, if we never listen to sermons, if we never read good Christian books on theology, then we are ripe for the waves of worldly doctrine to point us wherever it wants us to go. I mean... as families, you ought to be in the word every day, every week. It, it, may I be so bold as to say that if your only intake of the word of God is Sunday morning, there will be a day when you will no longer call yourself a Christian. If you have no, no love for the word of God, you don't love the word of God enough To go out and dig into it outside of this place right here? That's a problem. That's a problem. Still drinking milk. We need to be careful that we are not ripe for the waves of worldly doctrine to point us wherever they want us to go. Now, this being said, Paul needs to backtrack a little bit and clear the air on a particular issue. He addresses the fact that their worldly uh, wisdom is evidencing itself in their fighting with one another. They need to be thinking good doctrine. And now there's this little persistent issue about the fact that they keep on elevating Paul and Apollos and Cephas and all of this kind of stuff. And so he's going to kind of address this a little bit more directly. Uh, This begins in verse 5. So in verses 5 through 9, I think this is where the order is out of order here somewhere, where the outline is somewhere. But this section, there we go. What are spiritual leaders? I have decided to entitle this section, what, instead of who, even though who would have made a little bit more sense, who are spiritual leaders. We're going to call this, uh, what are spiritual leaders? Uh, simply because this is exactly what the text says. We're just borrowing it from the text. The text says in verse 5, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Not who. He's using the the neuter here instead of the masculine who. He's saying what is Apollos, what is Paul? One writer thinks that perhaps this could be... um, You guys are just going to have to follow me somehow. I don't know what happened there. So follow me the best you can in the back. One writer says this, that this takes attention away from the persons of the preachers and concentrates it on their functions. So instead of saying, who are these people? Paul's really kind of trying to say, they're not as important as you think they are. What what are these people? Not who are they? Paul is trying to change the way the Corinthians view him and Apollos and other spiritual leaders. He identifies Christian leaders, not as cult leaders, But as servants, now this is kind of demeaning, particularly in this day and age, in the first century, when they see slavery all over the place, being a servant is not something that you really want to be. And yet Paul says something rather demeaning about himself, I'm just a servant, and he reveals another truth, and that is this, all Christians stand on level ground in terms of their relationship to God. We're all servants. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you about the real ranking. I'm actually number one. Paulus is number two. We're servants. All of us have an equal footing before the Lord. I, I as your pastor, do not have greater access to the Lord than you have. You, You don't need... I'm happy to pray for you, and I do pray for, for you. But you don't need to say, like, okay, this prayer really has to come true, so I better go to the pastor for this one and ask him to pray for it. We all have equal footing before the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here. We're all servants. That, that's all we are. Instead of elevating these Christian leaders, they should have understood that God is the one who needs to be celebrated. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. God gives the growth. God gives spiritual growth, not men. Thus God should be celebrated, not men. Psalm 65 and verse 9, you visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water, you provide the grain, you have prepared it. Who's the author? It's the Lord. When you see spiritual fruit growing in someone else's life because of your ministry, praise the Lord for your faithfulness, but worship God. Don't worship the, the, the tool that God used. Worship the author himself. We might say it this way. God is his own church growth expert. God is good at causing his church to grow his time in his way. This verse in 1 Corinthians is the church growth methodology that every church should embrace. Every course that you can take on church growth should feature this verse God gave the growth, and that would be the end of the church growth class. It would be over with. <laughs> because God is the one who causes his church to grow. Seriously, right? God is the one who causes church to grow. What, what does not cause God's church to grow would be the ideas of pastor CEOs, but instead, simply this, the plan of God. God God is the church growth expert. What has God called us to do? I mean, look at verse six. God, so God gave the growth, okay, so we're not doing that part. So so the premise that we could do something to cause church growth is ridiculous because it says right here, Paul planted Apollos' water. So, so we're, we're seeing, it's not that there isn't work to be done, but it's, picture the field, okay? You plant a crop, and you water the crop, and if there's a scorching hot summer, your crop's dead. You, you, you did these things, but it's ultimately dependent on God to send the right weather, to, to uh, not send insects or disease or whatever it might be. God is the one. Same thing with the church. We, we can preach the word. We can plead with people. We can pray. We, we, we can worship together. This preaching right now is not causing any spiritual growth to happen. It's God causing that. He might use this, but it's not me. It's not me doing this. It's the Lord. And so we need to understand that God cares more, and is more committed to the growth of his people than you and I are. He's he's more interested in that than you are. And what this means practically is that you and I are nothing when compared to the Lord. That's what he says in verse 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Nothing. Nothing. But only who? Only you. who? Who's the one that's something? There's, a, there's, there's, there's someone here who's, who's a nobody here, and there's someone here who's a some, somebody here in verse 7, okay? The one who plants and waters. Who's that? It's us, okay? You're not anything. I'm not anything. Who is something? God, who gives the growth, okay? What, is, what, what should our study of the word and preaching do to us. View of self. View of God. Uh. (laughs) When when we first became Christians, we might have thought that the gap was like this. (laughs) And then it's the gap is like this. (laughs) We need the Lord. He is everything to us. Paul and Apollos are not anything. They are, in fact, united in purpose and in status. He who plants and he who waters are one. Why, why are you saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Paul? We're, we're together. We're on the same team. We're on the same team, guys. So you don't have to say that one of us is better than the other one because we're united. We have the same purpose. We have the same status. We're not closer to the Lord than anyone else. Paul and Apollos are nothing special. They're united with one another. They're not in competition with one another. Their wages come from the Lord. Finally, he says this, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse nine is just one big statement of ownership. You, you want to you figure this out and, and get all this stuff? We are fighting about who's who and who's the best and who's this. Guess what? God owns us all. You want to talk about us? Okay, we're God's fellow workers. What does that mean? God owns us. You want to talk about you guys? You're God's field. God owns you. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you do. You're owned by God. And thus, by the way, you're accountable to God in his standard. Both Paul and the Corinthians belong to God. It is a statement of not only ownership, but a statement of identity. Who are you? Who am I? I'm the property of the Lord. And God is more important than we are. And of course, this brings us really to the end of the passage today. And it brings us to the answer to our second question. We asked these two questions at the beginning What is the cause of jealousy and strife? And we saw that this sectarianism, this jealousy and strife, was due to the fact that these Corinthian Christians were still drinking milk when they should have been eating meat. They, they were not concerned with diving into scripture, but rather just absorbing the worldly wisdom around them. We saw, again, that's a continuation of the theme we've seen for the last several weeks of con- comparing and contrasting God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. Um, so that's the answer to the first question. The second question was, what is its cure? Uh, how, how do we fix this jealousy and this strife? And... The answer is given to us here as well. Paul's remedy is theology, sound theology. Now, to maybe state the obvious, the answer is always going to be theology, whether it's a wrong answer or not. You're, you're, you're going to give my answer to this question is a statement about God whether I believe God is relevant or not. So it's, in a sense, the theological statement. The question is, how can we have good theology to combat our sectarianism, our fighting, our having, uh, going to war with one another, being jealous, strife? The, Christ, the, the Corinthian Christians needed to combat their sectarianism, their jealousy, and their strife with theology about the nature and attributes of God. And it is in this one statement, God gives the growth. Mm-hmm. What kind of doctrinal statement is God gives the growth? What is that statement? Here's what, th- it's it's a theology of God as the giver of life. Mm-hmm. We're having a fight over here, and the doctrine to apply is God is the giver of life. That's what the text has for us. God give- they needed to understand that God was the author of giving growth, not Paul and Apollos and this and that and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. God gives the growth. It may appear a bit odd to us, but it is a sound diagnosis given by the Apostle Paul in the Word of God. You're fighting about Christian celebrities? Here's your prescription. Get a good dose of God's sovereignty as the giver of life. Understand that, and all of these things will fade away. Because guess what? If God's the giver of the growth, I don't have to align myself with this particular Christian celebrity anymore. I don't have to fight. I don't have to fight with someone else in my own church over who's the best expositor. I can give you some ideas on that. But (laughs) we don't have to fight over those things, right? Because why? Because ultimately, your favorite expositor, your favorite pastor or preacher or whatever... Is, is not the one causing that growth. It's God. So celebrate God instead. You know what happens when you celebrate God instead of people? You don't fight with each other. You see how this is a cure? There, there, there are churches all over this world today meeting with one another who are fighting with one another. And they're fighting with one another because they have a low view of God. They're not celebrating God. God is not esteemed in their mind. Something else has replaced God as supreme. And whenever that happens, whenever God is no longer in first place, you will fight and you will have division. Mark it. That is the only alternative. God is the one who exclusively brings unity. You say our nation is fractured today? It is. We need God. We don't need all these worldly wisdom ideas. We need God. You cannot escape your need for sound doctrine and sound theology. Don't run away from the word. Embrace it for answers to all of life's problems. Three points of application today. Number one, repent of your theological ignorance. Or maybe we could say of your boasting in that, if that's something that you're doing. If you are one who has said doctrine doesn't matter, or you've said doctrine divides, love unites, this is a call to repent of that. Don't pit doctrine, and love against one another. Second point of application is abandon sectarianism by embracing sound doctrine. Okay, fighting, division, sectarianism, guess what? Embrace sound doctrine. What is it specifically in this passage? It's God's sovereignty as evidence in the fact that he is the giver of life. If you are fighting and have division— it is a sure sign that you are not believing in God's sovereignty. You are not crediting him as the author of life, and you're not worshiping him above all other things. Number three, credit God with spiritual growth and success. God's the author of life. So may we run to him, find joy in Christ Look to him as the one who fixes, as scripture says, that dividing wall of hostility, melts it away in the gospel. Lord, we thank you for Christ and the gospel and the sufficiency of your word and the fact that you are the giver of life. You are the one who is sovereignly ruling over all. Help us to be people who embrace the truth of your word, not discarding it, not being ignorant on purpose, but diving into the word and knowing it, studying it, loving it, so that we know the guardrails that our love should move on. Help us to be people of the word, that we would not be people of the flesh or act like people of the flesh, as Paul says here, but that we would pursue the culture for the sake of Christ. In his name, amen.